If O.J. Simpson had uh, left behind at the scene his uh, video of his golf swing instead of his DNA, we would have known that he was there. That's how uh, individualistic uh, a golf swing is. For a player to play their best, they must perform unconsciously. That is uh, a myth. Uh, Rory McIlroy, when he won the British Open, now here's a great player that has spent much of his time uh, getting his golf swing to unconscious competence. And they asked him, you know, what, uh, why did you, were you so effective? And he said, well, I had two trigger words or cue words. Those trigger words allowed him to access his unconscious competence uh, that had been laid down through practice and so on and so forth. Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock. We've got a great myth debunking discussion today. You could call it nerdy, but if you are a golf nerd, this one is for you, believe me. We're going to discuss the five biggest myths in the golf game, about the golf swing, in and around the industry. If you think practice makes perfect automatically, try again, not in this sport. That's just one of the five myths we're going to debunk today, and in order to do so, we're going to lean on the wisdom of Dr. T.J. Tomasi. Tomasi has over 30 years of teaching experience. He also holds degrees in both education and sociology, which, if you pay attention, it won't be long before you notice that. He specializes in helping students create a golf swing that perfectly matches the framework of their body. So listen up, that means there is a golf swing out there for you. All hope is not lost. He's the man to pay attention to with this kind of stuff. Dr. Tomasi, how are you doing this fine evening? Well, it's nice to hear your voice, Sean. I'm doing fine. Good, good. I'm doing fine as well. It is uh, an interesting time in the golf season because we're in between the Masters and the Players and the U.S. Open. So we've got a very big summer coming up. But until we start really talking about events, I want to host a couple podcasts that kind of delve into the basics of the golf swing, the basics of the golf mind. We did a podcast with a sports psychologist last week to kind of talk about the mental game. So now I've, I've kind of commissioned you to give us the myths of the golf swing and kind of debunk some things that people believe to be true. And you've given me plenty of stuff. I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to break down a bunch of myths, and we might as well just get into it. The first one is that uh, all good players are the same at impact. You would reckon that no, that's not correct. Instead, golf swings are like snowflakes and that no two swings are alike. Why, why would you say that? Well, you know, in uh, some of my uh, classes I teach at Kaiser University, one of the things I do, uh, I tell the kids, you know, if uh, O.J. Simpson had uh, left behind at the scene uh, of the crime his uh, video of his golf swing instead of his DNA, uh, we would have known exactly uh, that he was <laughs> that he was there. That's how uh, I, I believe uh, individualistic. Uh, a golf swing is there are some people however that uh hold the belief the uh, the concept that uh, everybody that's any good is the same at impact notice they don't say similar but they say that it is the same now when you unpack that concept of being the same uh you have to be really careful as you are going down that road 
because obviously, as Sheldon showed us in the 1940s with his uh, triad uh, of the body types of endomorph, ectomorph, and mesomorph, um, and we know from uh, neurobiology uh, and neuroanatomy, no two people, no two brains, no two body types uh, or three body types are really uh, the same. Uh, so the chances of somebody being uh, the same at impact, as a matter of fact, when you measure them, as people have, and I have, you see different spine angles, you see different positions uh, at impact. Some people look over the ball as it leaves, other people look under it as it leaves. You see different forearm rotation. Uh, you see definitely different weight distributions. Some people have much more weight on their right side. Some people have all of their weight on their left side. Uh, some rotate their head. I call this, uh, I did a, uh, a teaching thing with Annika Sorenstam, and you know how she rotates her, her head. I call that the hypermodern release. And it's part of the release of a good player and others don't rotate their heads uh, at all and some rotate it in the opposite direction at impact. Uh, the release pattern is different with the trail arm. If you are a drawer of the golf ball, the chances are your trail arm is straight uh, at impact in order to release the club to draw the ball. Uh, other times, uh, Tom Lehman's an example, other times it would be bent, sometimes it's right in the middle uh, sometimes uh, the trail heel is up, sometimes it's down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the last one, which is the most obvious, if you look at the radar trackings and the videos of drawers of the golf ball, they have a different path-face relationship than do faders of the ball, than do ball, player, ball strikers if the ball straight. So actually, it's just the opposite uh, no, I believe no two swings are exactly the same, and you're heading down the right road, or the wrong road, if you uh, believe that they are. Yeah, and in, in, in my uh, more general view, I think people would see, or the idea of great players being in the same position at impact, kind of just because they they're just assuming, uh, you know, the club face is making proper contact. I think that. So are you saying that that's just too general of a view, that, that it's, it's too simplistic of a view, it's much more complex than that? Oh, I say, yeah, I say that that's not true, because what they are using that to argue, as I say, when you unpack the concept, it gets kind of odious. What they are using that to argue is that the rest of the swing, what happens before the takeaway, the position at the top, uh, the grip, stance, posture, et cetera, et cetera, they are all matters of style, uh, and it really doesn't matter as long as you, at the moment of truth, as they call it, uh, as long as you are the same as the, as the great players are at impact, and they're all the same. And that's just not, <clears throat> that's just not true. That moment of truth actually occurs, as uh, Cochran and Staub's research showed, at the top, uh, as soon as the club gets into the downswing, uh, we know through the research that the, that uh, any interventions that the player tries to make uh, are mistimed. So you can't really have 
any interventions in the downswing. So the moment of truth really is how you start down. Okay, I like that, uh, which is what we're looking for in this podcast is that not everybody believes or not everybody knows to be true. And I think when people think about the golf swing and hitting hitting the ball straight or uh, they, they assume the golf swing is, is straight back and straight through. And anyone who has, any, has played any, any type of real competitive golf knows that there are so many, so, so many pieces of a golf swing and, a, and of, a, of a straight shot. That's a great myth, and it is now debunked. Let's move on to myth number two, if you will. The myth is that a golfer or a golf teacher can tell what, what went wrong at impact by watching the ball flight, and you disagree. You say that that is a myth. And I heard you once say, don't let the ball flight be your master. So where do you think people should look? Or why do you think that watching the ball flight is not the proper way to analyze success? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Every advance in science throughout our history, uh, and I'll give you two examples, Galileo's telescope uh, laid the groundwork for the refutation that uh, the Earth was the center of the universe. That's a, a huge a difference, a huge mistaken concept that was dispelled by a technology made possible. And uh, in the 50s, Watson and Crick, who used crystallography, which was a new technology, to deduce the uh, structure of DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, which is the double helix, represents uh, the code of life. Those are those are the kinds of things that, that uh, technology can uh, shed the light on. And the technology occurred about ten years ago. Big revolution here in golf with with uh, Tuxen and his uh, TrackMan. Uh, and it was fought tooth and nail because uh, what it showed basically, now think of what this says, uh, okay, the earth is not the center of the universe, but what about all those churchmen that argued that in fact it was? Now you're telling them that are they are wrong. And what Tuxen was telling us as teachers was, hey guys, for the last, well, whatever, however old golf is, uh, 16th century, whatever, uh, you have been teaching with your eye alone, and that means that you have been making mistakes in re-engineering the ball flight back to uh, the body and what the body was doing. You can't do that. Um, and then he showed us how. Really the dawn of the new teaching principles, which now have taken over uh, the golf industry, as you well know, at Sports Illustrated. Yeah, it's it's definitely. So, would you say it's a myth that that has long been known to traditionalists or teachers yes. teachers who don't like TrackMan or Swing Analysis software? Why why could you fathom why? Uh, because TrackMan gives you so many things. It gives you launch angle. It gives you swing speed, ball speed, smash factor. I think the traditionalist way is to say wow, that's more numbers than I've ever had to deal with since Algebra 2. Why do I want that in my life now that I'm a 40-year-old teacher? Why, sure. why would you fathom that anyone who believes in their strengths as a teacher would say no to that stuff? 
I don't, Sean. It's it, it's the same reason that the churchmen in the Middle Ages that we talked about would not look through Galileo's telescope. They brought him up on trial, you know, Galileo. Galileo. They had him under house arrest, and they brought him into trial, and he said, the only thing I'll do in my defense, he set up a telescope. He said, the only thing I'll do is ask you to look through it. They wouldn't do it. They refused to do it because they knew what they would see. And so... You know, uh, for a while, uh, f- for a few years, I was uh, the, the uh, director of the Top 100 Teachers Association of Golf Magazine. And one of the things that we did on the committee was to review applications. And after you did it for a few years, um, they, they uh, vetted out into three piles about. Uh, one pile was a pile of the traditionals, as you say, and those were the people that that deemed uh, TrackMan and all those things uh, to be bells and whistles. Ah, we don't need that stuff. Uh, I, you know, I've been teaching for 35 years with my eye, and, and it's always been good up till now. Well, it hasn't, but they didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope and say that they were wrong. Then on the other end of the continuum were the young kids, like yourself, that have come up with uh, uh, true technology and, uh, you know, no iPhones and iPads, and they're not afraid of it. And uh, they teach primarily with that as their major tool. Uh, if the battery goes dead on the driving range, <laughs> sometimes they're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because they don't know how to teach the other way. Yeah. And then right in between was a small pile, and those were the ones that got to be top 100 teachers, was a small pile of those that have a foot in both camps. Uh, they use the technology as a tool, but they use it like a doctor uses an MRI uh, or uh, you know uh, an X-ray machine. They use it on an ad hoc basis. And they are not limited in their teaching scope to the technology. The technology is tied to them. They're not tied to the technology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And for, for people who, who are listening and don't know, numbers <laughs> numbers are your friend, both on your scorecard and also on a TrackMan device and in the back of your mind. There's a reason why golf is associated with stats just as much as any other sport like baseball and and if you look at uh, you know you look at coaches and teachers out on tour, some of the most successful ones, obviously Chris Como was sought after from Tiger Woods because of some of his biomechanic background and the ways that he can bring that to a, a Tiger Woods' swing and Tiger Woods' aging swing, and it obviously works. There's a reason why Justin Thomas, at 150 pounds that he is, is able to pump the ball 300 yards because he knows how to get a certain amount of force out of his body. Real briefly, could you explain in layman's terms why getting numbers on your swing, even just once uh, for an amateur that might go to a fitting station, why it's important to get some kind of numbers on your golf swing? Here's the thing. It is a little more complicated than the traditional view, which has steered a lot of people away from having to understand it. If you just debunk it, you don't have to understand it. Um, but think of it this way. Uh, there, uh, it, when, it, when it goes into what causes the curve on a golf ball, 
and what causes the trajectory of the golf ball, uh, what causes the ball to go straight, what causes the ball to curve left or right. Uh, there are certain basic parameters that have to be measured. I call them creating deltas or differences. So if you want to draw the golf ball, for example, <clears throat> and let's say we're using a six iron, if you want to draw a golf ball and you want it to start naturally, the one thing you have to do if you're going to draw the ball is start the ball to the right of target if you're a right-handed player. So you want to draw the ball to target. There is, all things being equal, a ratio that is, quote, written in the Rosetta Stone uh, that gives you uh, the draw that starts uh, to the right of target and curves to the target. And that is called a tight tour draw. And the numbers on that are plus two for the face, plus four for the path. In other words, the path is outside the face. There's more degrees to the right. Uh, the face is two degrees shut to the path, but open to the target line. And if you accomplish that, all things being equal, meaning center to contact is correct and the speed is correct and the angle of attack is correct, if you accomplish that and you get plus two, plus four, then that ball will draw to the target. Now, here's the thing. If you have seen that number, and you can tell how much away from plus two, plus four, your golf swing is, if you have, let's say, plus eight and plus 20, you can see that that is a huge delta that is not even in the ballpark, or worse, if it's minus, minus four, minus eight, let's see, then you know that that ball is actually going to start to the left. So right away you have an indication as to what is wrong, and you can watch the numbers change on the screen as you make the correction and get closer and closer to the delta that you want. That is revolutionary. It's like the ultimate in biofeedback uh, where you can make your own corrections, and I teach with it all the time at the university, and the kids now have learned how to make corrections by watching the screen and uh, uh, making the corrections in their body and their grip. Yeah, and it, it, it just gives credence to uh, a very, um, I, not, a, not a very widely known fact that as much as golf is a game of feel, it is so much more a game of physics. And a lot of people need to recognize that if they want to play the best golf that they can play. Let's move on to myth number three now. The myth is for okay. am the myth is for amateurs and centers around the idea of practice makes perfect. Now, that is a that is it's kind of there's a slight issue with with this myth because a lot of people believe practice makes perfect, but you would say when it comes to amateurs that's not always the case. No, uh that again is uh that is a myth. Uh, and what uh, what I believe, and I this is backed up by uh, research, what I believe is this, that um, you have to be very careful about your 
practice protocol, meaning the directions that you follow, either given you by your coach uh, or while you develop by your own research, uh, you have to be very careful that they aren't embedded in those in your protocol, what I call training scars. And training scars really are errors that are built in, almost like uh, uh, mutations are built into a genetic code that you don't realize that are th- that they're there. But every every time you go to the practice tee, you are opening up uh, this uh, these mutations, uh, and they are producing uh, these errors uh, and these flaws in your practice procedures. So it doesn't do you any good to practice. As a matter of fact, it does you harm if you do not have uh, the rid your uh, your practice protocols from, uh, from training scars. Can I, can I interrupt and can you give me an example of what a training scar might be and maybe in yeah. like short game? Let, yeah, let me give you an example outside of golf and then I'll give you some inside of golf. See if, uh, if anybody uh, recognizes uh, the training scarred uh, profile. And this is a true story. It's a policeman and uh, the policeman uh, every week for 20 years approximately uh, practiced on the range uh, shooting range, and he would draw his gun from his holster, uh, improve his uh, draw time. He would fire a shot, uh, put the, hol- the gun back in the holster, uh, get set, put the timer on, draw the sh- shoot, uh, and he never had to use his gun <clears throat> except in this one instance 20 years later in which he was uh, in a shootout. And he drew, fired, and put the gun back in the holster, was in the process of drawing again, and he was attacked by multiple assailants. He hit the one guy, and the other two shot him. Okay. Why is that? Why do, why, why, they couldn't even figure out what happened at first because they said, why would a, an officer put his gun back, faced with three opponents, why would he put his gun back in the holster after the first shot. Because that's what he was used to. And the to. answer was, yes, training scar. That's okay. the way he trained. Before Dr. Tomasi and I continue, I just wanted to make you all aware of something really great that's happening at golf.com in short time. We are proud to present Golf Films, a new documentary series from the writers and editors of Golf Magazine and Sports Illustrated. In the first installment, titled A Beautiful Game, we visit Rio de Janeiro to soak in the golf culture tour the controversial Olympic course, and we encounter a true underdog along the way. That will kick off on golf.com next week. I've already seen the footage and the documentary. It's great. You're going to want to check it out. 100% worth your time, but you're going to have to wait, I don't know, four or five days to see it. So tune in to golf.com next week. With that, let's get back to my discussion with Dr. Tomasi. I listened to a podcast the other day about the difference between common practice and deliberate practice. And this is all about... This is all about deliberate practice and people understanding what deliberate practice is. For instance, if you are a basketball player, an amateur basketball player, and you pick up a basketball off the ground and you shoot a three-pointer, you're not perfecting how you would shoot that shot in a game atmosphere. Deliberate practice instead would be if someone was passing you the ball and analyzing why you missed or made that shot. 
So exactly. That's what people on the golf course need to understand is that deliberate practice is what provides perfectness, I guess. Yep. A deliberate practice is difficult because there is a challenge point. It's called, uh, I think you've stated it very well. Uh, it's called optimum challenge point. And there is a, that point that you reach uh, when you are practicing. Uh, that's why Olympic skaters in practice fall a lot more than do average skaters. They are challenging themselves more. And what we found in the research is, is that if you challenge the brain too much and there's too much failure, then the brain shuts down. It doesn't want it. It avoids it. If the, if the, the, the brain is not challenged enough, the brain also shuts down because it gets bored. So it's the job of your coach and yourself to devise practice protocols that have the right optimum challenge points. Uh, and that is where the learning curve gets the most precipitous okay. right, right there. So correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, you go out and hit, hit a driver 50 times on the driving range, and the driving range is 150 yards wide. That is, that is common practice, but deliberate practice would instead be working with a coach or maybe not even with, with a coach, but having a target uh, off in the distance that you try to aim at and land within 15 yards either way. That is correct. That's very good. And and, and I'll give you another example of a, t- a driver where the driver goes wrong as a, a training scar. Is you hit a driver in practice, uh, let's say you're going to practice your driver, you might hit 20 or 30 drivers with about 10 seconds in between each, maybe 15, but it's just say 10 seconds. Uh, so you uh, have a certain time IQ established for that training routine. Uh, on the golf course, you might start off with a driver and then not hit another driver for 20 minutes yeah. if you hit a par three and so on. So your time frames uh, are not the same at all. That's a training scar, plus which anybody that is healthy uh, can, after two or three swings, uh, with a driver, adjust on the driving range. You don't have that adjustment time on the golf course. Uh, with the bone ball success rate, uh, you uh, have increased pressure. We know pressure does some crazy things to people. <laughs> yeah, so it that is. That trading scar is, is a good example uh, of uh, one that you you would screen your routine for and, and then change it. Yeah, I'm glad, I like how you said uh, pressure does does many things, especially in the moment of golf, because uh, that's kind of something we talked about last week with Dr. Brett McCabe, a uh, sports and performance psychologist. That's great. I really appreciate that myth and debunking it, because uh, that's something that, that everyone, anyone that plays golf, anyone that's interested in golf as a hobby, needs to understand what deli- deliberate practice is. So now we're done, th- we're done with three myths. Let's move on to myth number four. The myth is, for a player to play their best golf, their swing needs to be in unconscious motion, meaning that they don't, they're not thinking while they are performing that act uh, in the way that they desire to. The issue with that myth uh, is that 
one of the most well-known sports psychologists in the world and in athletics history, Dr. Bob Rutella, he believes in it. Yes. Yes, as he said, quote, uh, I have the quote in front of me, I would certainly argue that a player, for a player to play their best, they must perform unconsciously. And that is uh, a myth uh, that the newest research now uh, from uh, University of Hall in the UK, but also documented by other researchers, uh, have shown that the old uh, format of competence, where you began your journey uh, with unconscious incomp- un- incompetence, and you didn't know that you didn't know. Uh, that's how little you knew about golf. And then somebody handed you a golf club, and uh, you take a swing, and, you know, the first one dribbles, the second one is, uh, is fat, the third one's perfect, oh, you want that again, and the fourth one and the fifth one go all over the place. And you doesn't take you very long for the, 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 the newbie to say, there's something about this game I don't understand. That's conscious incompetence. That's a big step. That's a big step. But that's also a watershed because now you have to, it depends on the rest of your life as far as your golf goes, uh, it, what happens to you now. If you don't do anything about that, uh, conscious incompetence. You don't go see a teacher or you don't start uh, doing your own research kind of thing. Then you'll stay at that level for the rest of your life. However, if you do uh, go and see a teacher, a good teacher, a golf magazine, top 100, you will soon get to understand your swing and you will soon get to conscious competence. You'll be able to say it, but you won't be able to do it on the golf course the way you can say it in the bar at 11 o'clock at night, okay? And then the, the, the prize in this old format is you do it so much that you can do it now unconsciously. You can get on the golf course, put it on cruise control, and make all these moves uh, that were once conscious now can be unconscious. And that sounds great. It does. It really However, does. This, yeah. Well, this research, though, is showing that the elite players are staying what they call online as far as their anomaly detection goes. If you think about it, one of the things, as Hogan said, this is a, a game of adjustments. One of the things that happens on the battlefield and it happens on the golf course is that you must adjust to the conditions as they change. And it's very subtle, and it's over time, and there are anomalies that you must detect. The grass grows, it dries out, the wind picks up, it's gusting, the sun is at a different level. Uh, the, the clouds are intermittent, so first you have sunlight, then you have shade kind of thing. And there's a lot going on you don't really realize, and you must stay online in order uh, to be able to anomaly detect. And uh, this is a big thing in the soldiers, uh, being able to detect uh, garbage by the roadside uh, when you're on patrol, is there something uh, that isn't right there? I can't put my finger on it. It can save lives. 
uh, and you, they found in the SEALs that you can train for anomaly detection, which means it's a learnable skill. Okay, so now those people that stop at unconscious competence because they can repeat, repeat, and repeat like a robot are offline, and they cannot make the uh, subtle changes that the expert can make um, via uh, this last uh, level of competence, which I call total competence. Okay, so if someone is experiencing uh, unconscious competence, meaning that they are, they are almost robotic in how they, com- they complete the golf swing, they're great uh, at creating the golf swing, they would not, uh, under, via Bob Rotella, Dr. Bob Rotella, via his thought that that is, that is as great as it's going to get, that's not the case on the golf course because there's wind and you play in the British Open, maybe it rains and maybe your lie is wetter than normal or muddier than normal. Uh, these are all things that to actually be a perfect golfer, you have to go to the next level of consciousness uh, with the golf club in your hand. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I, yes. And I'm saying I, and the example of her, you just gave the British Open, uh, Rory McIlroy, when he won the British Open, and they asked him, now here's a great player that spent much of his time uh, getting his golf swing to unconscious competence, and they asked him, you know, what, uh, why did you, were you so effective? And he said, well, I had two trigger words or cue words. Uh, and uh, he said, I used the process and spot uh, to, on every shot, uh, to, to cue up on what I wanted to do. Well, you see how he was remaining online and that those trigger words allowed him to access his unconscious competence uh, that had been laid down through practice and so on and so forth. Uh, he was uh, he was still in the game making adjustments uh, while he was taking the benefit of unconscious competence. That makes a lot of sense. If uh, and and it might go over the head of some amateurs who are just trying to get out there and play bogey golf, but that is definitely a myth of the golf swing and a myth of, of professional golf because as anyone who has watched professional golf knows, there's always going to be various things that make it a non-robotic game. Uh, obviously weather conditions, as we said, but waiting time and, and various people that are in your surroundings. So that, that is a great myth, and I'm glad we debunked it. Now, final myth, number five, let's move on. Hitting the ball well during a lesson means you're headed in the right direction. I think, generally speaking, if I'm hitting the ball well during a lesson, I'm all into that lesson. I think that this is what has fixed me. <laughs> I, I, I'm in love with it, and I think I, I've been waiting for this lesson my entire life. You say that's a myth because of something called the paradox of learning. Could you briefly explain why uh, the paradox of learning makes, makes me think that way? Sure. Sure, and it happens all the time, and you're right, this is a, a little far out, but th- there's a, just uh, reams of research uh, on what's called contextual interference, uh, meaning uh, that the context that you set up in your practice protocol when you're practicing 
unless you are a, a rank beginner, if you're a rank beginner, then you can use block, what they call block repetition, meaning you can you can get the whatever task you're trying to learn and just keep repeating it. But once you move out of the uh, uh, initial uh, stages, if you are uh, at all accomplished as a as a handicap or a professional, definitely, uh, then it's just the opposite. There's a difference between retention over the course of time, meaning well, what retention of, it means is that it's gone to long-term memory. You have two uh, memory sections in your brain, primarily uh, short-term memory or working memory and long-term memory. And the things that come into short-term memory are held, oh, gee, two seconds, two minutes, two hours, but very, very uh, 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 least time, uh, minimal time. And when they come in there, uh, you can only hold, uh, the newest research uh, has lowered it, it used to be seven, that uh, it's now four to five things in working memory. I mean, how long do you have to remember <coughs> yesterday's uh, shopping list? <laughs> uh, not very long. Uh, and so what happens is housekeeping comes in and wipes out that short-term memory and, and uh, opens it up for uh, other uh, memories that you need to work with for a short period of time. Well, if you are uh, now uh, going uh, to take a lesson and uh, let's say you're a 12 handicap and you come and we're working on uh, hitting the driver – uh, and you hit the driver terrific uh, in that lesson, I look at myself as a great teacher, as you were just recounting, and you look at yourself as uh, a pleased student. However, two weeks later, you come back to me, and I've seen this in my experience, uh, and, and you say, I say, well, how's everything going, you know, uh, expecting to hear some great things, and you say, well, not only can I hit the driver, but my irons are gone now. Uh, and so what happened to all that learning was that it was uh, simply at the moment learning, and it stayed in short-term memory and was wiped out, and that's why you can't have it two weeks later. However, they have found there's a way around that naturally, and that is that in that same lesson where we hit 20, 30, 40, 50 drivers to get you to that point where you could temporarily hit the driver, if I had have given you two drivers and then a chip, a pitch, maybe we go putt once or twice, we come back, hit a six iron, and then two more drivers, if that's the way the protocol is organized, that soon, very soon, the short-term memory bin would be overwhelmed. And when that happens, what happens is that you recruit long-term memory. And so it would spill over and be sopped up by long-term memory. You wouldn't have the performance uh, at the time, but you will have it in two weeks. And that's very paradoxical. It's very puzzling. Yeah. No, it, 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 it might not make sense, especially in the moment. 
But uh, as you're saying, it, it, it is proven that in order to get your mind to think of this in two months or your body and mind, your hand-eye coordination to work out in two months, it, it requires a different type of, of lesson or a different type of practice and teaching, which is, yeah. which is honestly the way that you laid it out, driver, driver, maybe sand wedge, nine iron, six iron, driver, driver, sand yeah. wedge, nine iron, eight iron. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like a game of golf? That's really what golf yeah. kind of comes down to is driver yes, something that's else. Another, something. Absolutely. That's another point, Sean. That's another good point. And that is, you know, you, you want to create, as they say in the SEALs, you know, uh, hard training, easy war. Uh, and it's the same in golf, you know, uh, hard practice, uh, easy round. And vice versa, easy practice where everything goes beautifully and there's no uh, challenge, uh, then you have a hard round. Uh, it's just the opposite. And people who make their living getting paid for producing performance in other people have an awful time accepting that. As a matter of fact, there's one teacher, we'll leave it unnamed, that says, I, when the students come to me, they all leave hitting the ball better. And that's sort of his tagline. And anybody that knows about uh, uh, this uh, type of uh, contextual interference in the research knows that what he's really telling us is that he doesn't understand how to structure a protocol. Yeah, it sounds like he's putting Band-Aids on a golf swing, kind of a quick fix, so to say. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. You know, I, I find this conversation uh, incredibly fascinating. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Tomasi, because uh, golf is a sport that has, um, through very many, many people and many reasons, it is getting closer and closer to being very statistical and, and very physics-bound and physics-related. And I think, I think the amateurs are going to be the last people to really take note and, and appreciate that. The pros have taken note. And there's a reason why more people drive the ball 300 yards than there ever used to be. And that same realm for people who don't quite understand the numbers of golf, there's a reason why Stephen Curry exists uh, the way he is as a basketball player in 2016 uh, as opposed to someone doing that in 2002 because sports uh, <laughs> across the board are getting smarter and smarter, better and better when they, they approach the game from a physical, uh, a physics bound and a stats bound perspective. So I appreciate your time. That was great. Uh, and for anyone else that, uh, that has any other myths, definitely let us know because, uh, I'm sure in the future we can, there's, there's plenty more myths in the golf world and in the golf swing that we can delve into. <laughs> they, they are, there are, let me say, uh, Sean, this was, it was a pleasure to be with you. Well, folks, that is it for the golf.com podcast today. Call it a golf.com nerdy podcast, if you will. It's a very good sociological myth debunking discussion. And my head is slightly spinning, but nonetheless, that's fascinating stuff that we rarely think about or talk about. And it's very applicable not only to the pros, but also to the amateurs. Nonetheless, major thanks to him for joining us. And thanks to you for listening even though I'm not done with you yet, I've got one more myth for you. The myth is that we don't need more subscribers and ratings. It's false. We absolutely need as many subscribers and ratings as possible. I would love if you would rate and subscribe to the podcast, maybe five stars out of five. 
That would make my day. So please help us out in that avenue. We love doing these golf.com podcasts, and we love getting great guests like Dr. Tomazi to come on. But that's just a tiny bit of support that you can send our way, and it is very much appreciated. Beyond that, let me know your thoughts on the show, or if you have any pressing golf myths that you think we should try to debunk. Any questions you'd like me or the other hosts to tackle, send them our way. Tweet me at Sean underscore Zach, that's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K, or at golf underscore com, G-O-L-F underscore C-O-M. I and the many other people that work on this podcast will be sure to get back to you. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.